This is the Humboldt Chronicles. I am the queen of everything. I gotta be high before I can sway. Lighter tea and let it be. If you a viper. I'm Chuck Rogers with producer Larry Trask. The Humboldt Chronicles is made possible by Proper Wellness Center and Lost Coast Exotics. Much appreciation for your support of The Humboldt Chronicles. Tonight's show is the 41st episode of The Humboldt Chronicles. Over the years, we've covered a large number of widely diverse topics, but whether we're talking about retail operations, the survival of small legacy farms, state regulations, or the broader business climate in the cannabis industry, one topic keeps coming up over and over again. Legalization of cannabis at the federal level. It seems that no matter how a person might be involved in the cannabis industry here in Humboldt, the federal status of marijuana is a relevant and pressing matter. We're going to start off tonight's episode with a broad overview of where things stand currently in Washington, D.C. I think it's fair to say that there's been more activity in the White House and on Capitol Hill on this issue in the last six months than in the preceding four years. You may have some inkling of why things changed so abruptly as 2021 dawned, but there's also been a tremendous amount of activity at the state level. So once we've delved into the momentum at the federal level, we'll review developments, many of them very recent, at the state level. And finally, we'll conclude our discussion with an in-depth look at legalization efforts in a nearby state that not only hasn't yet taken any steps towards legalization, but whose legislature has tried to shut down a popular movement advocating for medical use laws. Our discussion starts in Washington, D.C., where the federal government has long been lagging behind the individual states in its approach to cannabis legalization. Beginning with the Marijuana Tax Act in 1937, and especially continuing through 1970's Controlled Substances Act, possession and use of any form of cannabis has been prohibited by federal law. Things began to loosen up a bit during the Obama administration, though not as far as many advocates wanted, before tightening up somewhat during the Trump years. Even with a bit of retrenchment during the previous administration, many people came to believe that federal legalization was an inevitability, just a matter of time. After all, opinion poll after opinion poll consistently shows that a large majority of Americans favor some form of legalization, whether that be medical only or medical and recreational. Where the people go, our political leaders soon follow, history shows. Here's what our Congressman Jared Huffman had to say back in October of last year when we asked him, prior to the presidential election, what he thought a Biden-Harris administration might bring. Well, I've talked to Kamala Harris specifically about it. Um, you know, we are colleagues uh, in, in the Congress, and uh, I've known Kamala for many, many years. And uh, she definitely has evolved on this issue. Um, you know, as a prosecutor, it, it won't surprise anyone to know that I think she was uh, quite skeptical of uh, cannabis legalization uh, years back. Uh, but my most recent conversation with her, you know, probably a year ago, she seemed fully comfortable with decriminalization. I don't think I certainly don't think you're going to get resistance from her on it. I don't know where Biden is, uh, but I know where the country is and where the Congress is. And, uh, you know, I feel like it's time. We're really quite close here to uh, to just getting this done. And 
then everybody is going to wonder why we waited so long, because it's going to be no big deal. And indeed, though it's far too early to start the celebration, things look like they might be starting to change in the nation's capital. On December 4th of 2020, the U.S. House of Representatives passed the Marijuana Opportunity Reinvestment and Expungement Act of 2019, known more succinctly as the Moore Act which proposed to remove cannabis from the scope of the Controlled Substances Act, as well as implement social justice and criminal justice reforms, including the expungement of certain prior marijuana-related convictions. Though the Moore Act passed in the House, it languished in the Senate and did not get put up for a vote. The bill will have to be reintroduced in the current 117th Congress and pass again in the House before it can be considered by the Senate and ultimately sent to the President for signature. No schedule for its reintroduction has been announced, though several members of Congress have vowed that this will happen. When? Soon, says Congressman Jerry Nadler of New York, one of the bill's original co-sponsors. Meanwhile, other legislation seeking to ease federal restrictions on the cannabis industry is working its way through the process. Just this week, on Monday the 19th, the House of Representatives passed the Safe Banking Act. That's a bill that protects banks that provide services to cannabis businesses in legal states from being penalized by federal regulators. Access to banking services that all other businesses enjoy has been denied to the cannabis industry, and the Safe Banking Act, which received bipartisan support and passed the House with a vote of 321 to 101, seeks to reverse that. The bill has not yet been scheduled for consideration by the Senate, and Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer yesterday indicated that he does not intend to push the measure forward in the Senate ahead of full legalization. Why? Well, according to Senator Schumer, a cannabis banking bill will get support from senators who do not back broader reform measures. So, he intends to link the two issues in the hope of increasing support for more comprehensive reform. Of course, getting through Capitol Hill is just one hurdle, albeit a significant one. A bill is really just a proposal until it's signed into law by the president, and Joe Biden's position on cannabis legalization has varied from opposed to ambiguous. Here's New Jersey Senator Cory Booker, one of three senators putting forth the most effort to bring about an end to marijuana prohibition, addressing then-candidate Joe Biden's stance during a Democratic debate in Atlanta in November of 2019. I have a lot of respect uh, for, for the vice president. He has uh, swore me into my office as a hero. This week, I hear him literally say that I don't think we should legalize marijuana. I, 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 I thought you might have been high when you said it. <laughs> and, and let me tell you, because, because marijuana, marijuana, marijuana in our country is already legal for privileged people. And it's one, the war on drugs has been a war on black and brown people. For the record, here's candidate Biden's response. I'll be very brief. Number one, I think we should decriminalize marijuana, period. And I think everyone, anyone who has a record should be let out of jail. Their record's expunged. It'd be completely zeroed out. But I do think it makes sense, based on data, that we should study what the long-term effects are for the use of marijuana. That's all it is. Number one, everybody gets out, record expunged. Secondly, more recently, Senator Booker articulated 
articulated a more hopeful opinion of now President Biden's viewpoint. He believes in decriminalization. And as I said to him the first time we talked about it was, well, my bill is no different. I think states should be allowed to do what they want. I think it should be legalized. But what we need to do at the federal level is delist marijuana. And as soon as you decriminalize marijuana, you open up states that right now are not able to do a lot of things um, uh, to, to give way for what I want to achieve. So his policy position on marijuana, he may say, I'm not for legalization, I'm for decriminalization. As a federal official, I, I, that's where I'm trying to get. I went from introducing the Marijuana Justice Act, I can't remember how many years in Congresses ago, mm. that I, I remember people snickering at me um, that I would take such a bold stand, probably the most comprehensive bill on marijuana reform ever. And now I have uh, two of the more powerful people in the Senate, the chairman of the Finance Committee, Ron Wyden, and, uh, and Chuck Schumer, my partnering with me, right. they're my two wingmen, I'm, 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 or the, the three amigos, that are leading this bill. And it's not just a legalization bill. I, I try to tell people all the time, do not just seek adult use, because if that was all we did, it would be unjust. You need to talk about expunging records. It remains to be seen, though, what position President Biden might ultimately take on whatever proposal comes out of Congress, whenever it actually does. Just yesterday, 420, White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki was asked directly about Biden's support for nationwide legalization. Her response could be characterized somewhere on the range of aggressively noncommittal to strategically vague. This is 420, and yes. uh, Senator Chuck Schumer said from the Senate floor, he called it the unofficial uh, American marijuana holiday. Uh, and he said that he now supports legalizing marijuana on a national level. Is this something that President Biden would support? Well, the president supports leaving decisions regarding legalization for recreational use up to the states, rescheduling cannabis as a Schedule II drug so researchers can study its positive and negative impacts. And at the federal level, he supports decriminalizing marijuana use and automatically expunging any prior criminal records. He also supports legalizing medicinal marijuana. So that's his point of view on the issue. So if the House and Senate pass a bill legalizing marijuana at a federal level, would the president sign it? Uh, well, I just have outlined what his position is, which isn't the same as what the House and Senate have proposed, but they have not yet passed a bill. Saki's comments notwithstanding, most of the recent developments coming out of Washington are positive from a pro-legalization perspective. And it's true that legislative activity in this regard has increased on Capitol Hill in recent months, a trend that seems to be continuing. But nothing is certain in the world of Washington politics, and nobody is talking about anything even approaching a date certain when legislation will be enacted and laws will change. At the state level, however, things are changing and rapidly. And we'll take a look at that when the Humble Chronicles continues. Back in a moment. Welcome back to the Humble Chronicles. If you're just joining us, we're taking some time this month to look at the state of cannabis legalization in the U.S. As we saw in the first part of our program, at the federal level, it seems as if progress is being made and activity is increasing. But go ahead and leave the cork in your champagne bottle for the moment. At the state level, however, a lot is happening. As things stand right now, 42 of the 50 states have at least some form of legalization in place, whether it's adult use recreational or a more restrictive medicinal use program. And of the eight states where marijuana possession and use remains illegal, 
Two of those states, Nebraska and North Carolina, have at least decriminalized it. And it is accurate to say that grassroots legalization efforts are underway in each state in which prohibition persists, one of which we're going to take a closer look at later on in the final segment of this show. In the November 2020 general election, ballot initiatives permitting either adult-use recreational or medicinal marijuana passed in Arizona, Montana, New Jersey, Mississippi, and South Dakota, although the situation in South Dakota has been rendered somewhat murky due to a circuit court decision declaring the initiative state unconstitutional. It is broadly true that the general population is further ahead than the politicians, at least according to opinion polling, but the long-prevailing sentiment favoring prohibition is losing favor in some state houses. As recently as April 12th, New Mexico Governor Michelle Grisham signed Special Session HB2 into law, legalizing the adult use of recreational marijuana. Companion legislation expunging past cannabis convictions was also signed into law. Adults 21 and older in New Mexico can purchase and possess up to two ounces of cannabis and can grow up to six mature plants. Legal retail sales are expected to begin in April of 2022. In February of this year, Democrats in Virginia's General Assembly passed legislation to fully legalize adult-use cannabis. No Republicans voted for the measure, which still managed to pass with a broad margin. The new law was originally slated to take effect in 2024. However, on April 7th, the Virginia legislature approved amendments to the bill offered by Governor Ralph Northam to move the effective date to July 1st of this year. The biggest recent news at least in terms of population, is that New York Governor Andrew Cuomo signed the Marijuana Regulation and Taxation Act into law on March 31, 2021. The new law legalizes adult use of cannabis and creates automatic expungement of certain previous marijuana convictions. Retail operations are expected to commence sometime in 2022. In addition to the states just mentioned that have already enacted reforms, legalization through legislation appears to be on the visible horizon in at least four other states. In Connecticut, there are two legalization proposals being considered, including one that has the public support of Governor Ned Lamont. In an interview earlier this month, Connecticut Speaker of the House put the odds at 50-50 that a legalization bill would emerge from the legislature this calendar year. Recent public opinion polls show just under 67% support among nutmeg staters for legalized cannabis. Delaware, one of President Biden's home states, seems similarly poised for legislative action. Despite Republican opposition, an adult use bill has progressed out of a House committee and is now being considered by the Delaware House Appropriations Committee, its final stop before being considered by the body as a whole. Also in New England, a pair of Rhode Island Senate committees held a joint hearing on legalization proposals earlier this month, including one put forward by Rhode Island Governor Dan McKee. While action on these proposals has yet to be taken, Ocean State senators discussed legalization as an inevitability especially in light of reforms undertaken by neighboring states. Finally, in the Midwest, measures are proceeding in a state that has very much been in the spotlight recently. A bill to legalize adult use has steadily been making its way through the Minnesota legislature and is expected to reach its final committee stop by the end of this month, potentially seeing action by the full chamber in May. Although passage by the House is widely expected, the bill faces opposition in the Republican-controlled Minnesota Senate, where members have voiced a preference 
for reforming the existing medical cannabis program rather than moving into full recreational legalization. It's difficult to take all this into consideration and not believe that nationwide legalization is more than just a possibility. However, even if federal reforms do become a reality, there's a lot of work yet to be done and a lot of questions yet to be resolved. Whatever federal regulatory scheme emerges, it's extremely likely that individual state policies will still play a significant role in our 50-state marketplace. For political, practical, and other reasons, it's almost certainly going to be the case that Washington will grant substantial latitude to states to craft their own regulatory approaches or quite possibly to opt out of legalization entirely. After a short break, we're going to take out the microscope and focus in on one particular state, not very far from here where the population seems to be of one mind and the politicians of another. This is the Humboldt Chronicles. Thanks so much for listening to the Humboldt Chronicles. In the preceding two segments of tonight's show, we looked at legalization activity at the federal level and the significant momentum continuing at the state level. As mentioned, currently there are only six states where possession and use of cannabis remains fully illegal and not decriminalized. Alabama, Kansas, South Carolina, Tennessee, Wyoming, and our neighbor to the north, Idaho. Under current Idaho law, an individual charged with possession of up to an ounce of pot faces a year in jail and fines up to $1,000, with higher penalties for larger amounts. And as usual, these harsh laws hit communities of color the hardest. Black Idahoans, according to the American Civil Liberties Union, are nearly four times more likely to be arrested for possession than their white neighbors. Recent opinion polls put support for some form of legalization in Idaho north of 70%, and signatures are being gathered for a potential 2022 ballot initiative. But the sweet smell of inevitability does not waft above the gem state as it might in some other states. Legislators in Idaho, and particularly in the Idaho Senate, have been unusually aggressive in their opposition, not just to legalization measures in the Idaho legislature, but to the very question even being put before the citizens of the state. In February of this year, the Idaho Senate approved a resolution to amend the state constitution to prevent marijuana and other drugs from ever being legalized, even if approved by voters in a ballot question. This resolution ultimately failed in the Idaho House, but still received more votes in favor than against. We spoke with Russ Belleville, spokesperson for the Idaho Citizens Coalition, one of two organizations in Idaho currently working to place a medical cannabis initiative on the 2022 ballot. We asked Russ why some Idaho politicians are so strongly opposed. We have a saying, uh, welcome to Idaho, set your clock back 30 years. So politically speaking, <laughs> Idaho is about 1991 when it comes to understanding cannabis. There are uh, lawmakers and people in positions of power in the state who still believe, you know, old reefer madness like the gateway theory or uh, other sort of ludicrous notions about cannabis is going to cause homelessness or it's going to cause lack of productivity. And even when you're talking about medical cannabis, you get this kind of pushback. So uh, it's certainly not within the, uh, the population itself. The people of Idaho, our polls show about 72 to 78% support medical cannabis, which is lower than the nation as a whole, but still, you know, uh, certainly a supermajority. And 
supported amongst all demographics, even Republicans in the state are over 60%. It's important to note that the initiative proposed for the 2022 ballot seeks legalization of medical use cannabis only, under conditions strictly regulated by the state and available only through a doctor's recommendation. Here again is Russ Belleville. The Idaho Medical Marijuana Act is a very middle-of-the-road mainstream medical marijuana proposal, similar to ones that we see in uh, Montana and some of the other states. Uh, It would propose that uh, people with certain qualifying conditions, and it includes the same, pretty much the same list of qualifying conditions most states have, cancer, cachexia, AIDS, glaucoma, seizures and spasms like multiple sclerosis, epilepsy, uh, chronic pain, chronic nausea. Uh, post-traumatic stress uh, is included as well, and terminal conditions. Any terminal condition would qualify for medical cannabis. Uh, those who qualify could get a registry card. They could have a caregiver. They could uh, possess up to four ounces of cannabis. And those patients who could demonstrate a hardship would be able to uh, grow up to six cannabis plants. Hardship would be uh, financial difficulty, uh, distance from a dispensary, or uh, other uh, reasons to be determined that would qualify someone. So it wouldn't let every patient be able to grow their own, but it would let many of the most uh, desperate patients be able to grow their own. And uh, let's see, cannabis we would be taxed at four percent, and I think that's uh, most of the most of the relevant uh, points for that. And how would one qualify through a doctor's recommendation? Right, just like most of the medical cannabis states, there would be uh, a physician appointment, one with a bona fide uh, relationship with the patient to determine if they qualify, if they have one of those qualifying conditions, and then a uh, you know, recommendation from that doctor would then allow one to register with the state. There would be a state medical marijuana registry, like again, like most of the other medical marijuana states have. We also spoke with Jackie Winters, founder of Kind Idaho, an organization that's working with the Idaho Citizens Coalition to gather signatures. We asked Jackie why she got involved with the project. I felt like Idaho is losing her voice, and I know lots of people in Idaho who suffer greatly and that make their weekly, sometimes daily trips to a different state to purchase their medical marijuana. So we're definitely smoking it in Idaho, and I would like it to be with compassion for the people who need it for medical reasons, and I've, I've experienced that firsthand with my daughter. And then there's elderly people. We have such a huge community of elderly that suffers with arthritis and osteoporosis. And it's just not that big of a deal. And Idaho is just, I feel like we're losing our rights and our voice. We need the governor to be standing up for our rights. It's extremely important for so many people who suffer in Idaho, and we know they're going to different states to get their medication. So wouldn't it be nice to have it right here where we live? Jackie is correct about Idahoans visiting neighboring states to get their medicine. The town of Ontario, Oregon, the birthplace of the school lunch staple Tater Tots, sits at the edge of the Treasure Valley, as it's known, where 40% of Idaho's population lives. Ontario, Oregon, is only a 50-minute drive from Boise. Though Ontario has a population of just 11,000 people, it is home to nine dispensaries. Some have estimated that Ontario, Oregon will eventually generate $120 to $130 million in annual sales, a figure exceeding 10% of the entire state's 2020 sales. 
Here's Jackie Winters. The figures from Oregon and Washington and all the, the eight dispensaries they have there are booming. I mean, it's just unreal. Of course, that's Idaho money. They know where it's coming from. So most definitely there are drugs in Idaho. There are. I would just like it to be legal for medical patients. And it, it's just I feel like he's got blinders on at this point. And I'm talking about Mr. Grow. I don't know that he is getting all the facts here. You know what I'm saying? I just don't know what his reasons behind it are. Mr. Grow. While you could be forgiven for thinking that's the name of a local hydroponic store, it's actually the name of an Idaho senator, Cecil Scott Grow, or C. Scott Grow, as he prefers to be called. Senator Grow was originally appointed to his seat to fill a vacancy and has since been re-elected. While anti-legalization sentiment is prevalent throughout the Idaho legislature, many point to Senator Grow as the most active opponent. Here's Russ Belleville of the Idaho Citizens Coalition describing the source of legislative opposition. As I was mentioning, they still believe discredited reefer madness from the 1990s. Not only do they believe marijuana is a gateway drug that then inexorably leads you to a life of heroin addiction or something, they also believe medical marijuana is a gateway policy. They call it the camel's nose under the tent. If Sure, we can help the cancer patients out, but then they'll have the, they'll sneak in and then the next thing you know, it'll be marijuana legalization. And then the next thing you know, they often like to point to Oregon next door and say, you know, because Oregon has now decriminalized personal possession of all drugs and say, well, see, that'll be the next thing that'll happen is Idaho will inexorably slide from medical marijuana to recreational marijuana to decriminalizing all drugs, which of course, is a logical fallacy because at each step along the way, the people would have to vote on that stuff or the legislature would have to pass new laws. It's not as if you legalize medical marijuana and suddenly the whole state is so stoned that you just <laughs> sneak this stuff in. But that's the way they really believe. And there's also a, a religious aspect to this. Idaho probably has the highest concentration of people of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the Mormon Church, uh, next to Utah. Uh, if it's not larger per capita, it's it's at least pretty large. It's the second most Mormon state. And a lot of the leadership in the Senate and the House are also leadership in the Mormon church. Particularly, State Senator C. Scott Grow is on the council, I think it's called the Quorum of the Seventy in the in the Mormon church, which is like their Congress. So he's like a congressman in the Mormon church and a senator in the Idaho State Legislature who got his seat from an appointment by the governor before he won his first election. So you have a senator like C. Scott Grow that then puts forth this proposed constitutional amendment to strip Idahoans of their petitioning rights to ever change not just medical marijuana or recreational marijuana, but perhaps, you know, medical psilocybin or therapeutic MDMA or anything that might be developed in the future. And in his testimony debating this and, 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 and proposing this, Senator Grow often made pointed remarks about the Idaho Constitution's uh, Article 1, Section 26, which says the government is installed to provide for the temperance and morality of the people and should promote sobriety amongst the people. So, you know, Idaho's Constitution was written in the 1890s when the temperance movement was happening, so there was a lot of that prohibitionist mindset. And he actually wrote his House resolution based on that constitutional provision and saying that this was our job to protect Idaho from drugs by making them permanently illegal and impossible to change by initiative. So there's, to sum it up, there's, there's a religious aspect to it and there's a reefer madness aspect to it. And the third part, law enforcement. They're one of the strongest lobbies in the state of Idaho. 
They get a lot of money through uh, asset forfeiture, which is a lot of that is fueled by marijuana stocks. They're rated a D minus as far as their state asset forfeiture rules. And of course, as we all know, marijuana arrests are easy arrests for police that take little time and cause little danger to them. So they don't want to see that changed either. Fourth, there's an anti-drug coalition group of people and retired law enforcement who've moved in from states like California, Oregon, and Washington, and Colorado, who spout the terrible things that happen in their cities and blame it all on marijuana legalization. A lot of misinformation, a lot of ulterior motives, and second agendas. We reached out to Senator Groh's office in an effort to include his perspective in this show, but received no response. As mentioned earlier, an attempt to change Idaho's constitution to prevent cannabis reform narrowly failed. What did not fail, however, is an effort to change Idaho's laws to make signature gathering much more difficult. Here again, Russ Belleville. The Idaho legislature is absolutely uh, furious over the fact that the last uh, uh, go-round in the initiative process, a group called Reclaim Idaho managed to put on the ballot the Medicaid expansion that then passed by over 60% statewide. This is something uh, Idaho Republicans in the legislature had been rejecting for, I believe it was seven years, up until Reclaim Idaho got this on the ballot. Idaho's original law, the 18 district law, was already one of the toughest in the nation as far as having to get something on the ballot. And now this new law makes it absolutely the toughest nation to get something on the ballot. And the motivation is partially because they want to stop citizen initiatives from happening generally. But they specifically said, these senators and representatives in their testimony, some of them, referenced that a medical marijuana initiative was coming. And we need to make sure that the big money out-of-state interests can't dominate and that the city districts can't put something on the ballot that the country districts don't want to have and you know referencing rural values and code for uh, having a moral disdain for marijuana and the really sneaky thing about this the really uh, disturbing thing from a democracy point of view is that by creating this 35 district requirement what they've actually created is a single district veto loophole See, if you have to collect 6% from all 35 districts, you could collect, let's say, 100,000 signatures across the state and meet your goal, in all, your 6% goal in all 35 districts. The opponents then would only have to find which district in which you had the fewest signatures over the 6% and then mount a campaign to get people to take their signatures off the initiative, saying you were hoodwinked, you were fooled, you were bamboozled, whatever, get them to take signatures off the campaign, drop that one district below 6%, and it sinks the entire statewide initiative. It could come down to taking 100 signatures off of one rural district could sink 100,000 signatures gathered across the whole state. And worse, the 100,000 signatures had to be gathered in person across 18 months. The 100 signatures can be taken off by an email to a county clerk. So much less hassle for the opponents to try to veto any particular initiative. And this isn't just conjecture. Something just like this happened in Utah in 2018 to an initiative called Count My Vote. 
you know, Idaho and Utah have a lot of similarities and leadership that communicate with each other. It seems obvious to me that there was some collusion in that regard as far as how to stop a marijuana initiative because Utah passed one in 2018 as well. So for now, the signature gathering continues as advocacy groups await a legal opinion to determine if they are subject to the new signature rules or are grandfathered in under the older, less onerous rules. With such significant opposition from such powerful opponents, we wondered how people like Jackie Winters found the motivation to continue. As I'm getting older, I'm having terrible body pain. I have arthritis. I was in a horrible car accident in 1990 when my two-and-a-half-year-old was killed in the auto accident. Basically, the steering wheel went right through my body, and I broke all my ribs on the front and the back and damaged my heart. And I suffer in Idaho. And as I get older, I suffer more. And I'm choosing not to do opiates. You know, it would be really easy to be addicted to that. It's time to grow up. I don't like having people tell me what I can and cannot put in my body. If it helps me, if I eat gummy bears and they help me, then why can't I feel better in my state? Why do I have to choose to suffer? To close out our discussion with Russ Belleville of the Idaho Citizens Coalition, we asked him first how he came to be a legalization advocate and if he felt confident that his efforts would ultimately be successful. I grew up in Idaho and had been a marijuana smoker as a professional musician for years. What got me interested into it politically was I got married in 2001 and my wife needed medical marijuana. And since that was illegal in Idaho, we moved to Oregon in 2003. From there, I met many people who were involved in the medical marijuana movement and it just became a political obsession for me because once I saw how cannabis helped people so much and how fruitless and destructive its prohibition has been, I was just motivated from that point on to uh, work however I can to get these laws changed. I'm optimistic that if we're grandfathered in under the original 18 district rule, that yes, it will get on the ballot. And if it's on the ballot, it will pass. I can, I will like bet any sum of money on that. If we're forced to compete under the new 35 district rule, that's tough because nobody's ever tried to qualify under that rule before and have, we have no idea what the metrics of success would even look like. But I can tell you this, we're not going to stop. We will continue fighting this every two years until they take our initiative powers away. I'm Chuck Rogers with producer Larry Trask. This edition of the Humboldt Chronicles will be posted soon at 941lounge.com, lostcoastoutpost.com, and at iTunes for listening and downloading. Thanks to our guests, Jackie Winters from Kind Idaho, and Russ Belleville of the Idaho Citizens Coalition. Finally, much appreciation to our sponsors, Proper Wellness Center and Lost Coast Exotics. We'll be back with the Humboldt Chronicles at 6 p.m. on the third Wednesday of May. See you next time, May the 19th at 6 p.m.